Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Talking Ball with Pat Leonard, everybody. Thanks for joining me after this crazy and exciting week one slate of games. But I have some bad news for everybody around the NFL. We woke up the monsters. We woke up the sleeping giants. And you know who I'm talking about. Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. Start right there with Mahomes and the Chiefs and Andy Reid decimating the Arizona Cardinals and Kyler Murray. What were we all thinking picking other teams, other players to win the AFC, to win a Super Bowl, to win an MVP? I know it's only one week, but why did Mahomes suddenly become an underdog? Why did people overlook how great this player is and how great he would be even better possibly with a chip on his shoulder? Yes, they lost Tyreek Hill, but they didn't lose arguably the best player in the league. Definitely one of the best players in the league for four years running. He's been to the AFC championship game for four straight years, two Super Bowl appearances, one championship, 30 for 39 for 360 yards and five touchdown passes. Patrick Mahomes, the former MVP, four-time Pro Bowler against the Arizona Cardinals. And I loved what he said after the game. And I quote, I always feel like I have something to prove. I'm just this guy from Texas Tech that they said couldn't play in the NFL. Now, I can sit here and say with confidence that Mahomes was my preseason MVP pick because I knew this was going to happen. I knew that Mahomes having doubters was going to send him and Reed and Eric Bieniemy and this Chiefs offense to an entire another level because really they are just too good, too talented, and too determined not to succeed when people are somehow overlooking them despite their success. But when I say we woke up the monsters, when I say that we woke up the sleeping giants, I'm taking and stealing a quote from Sterling Shepard in the Giants locker room, which is where I was after the incredible finish to the Giants 21-20 win over the Titans in Nashville. What a moment, what a scene. But what Sterling Shepard said to me when I asked him about Saquon Barkley was, stop playing with the man. You're going to wake up the monster. That's what happened with Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City against against the Cardinals. And that is most certainly what happened with Saquon Barkley coming into this week one dynamic performance, 194 yards total, 164 rushing, 9.1 yards a carry, and a 68-yard run in the early third quarter that Saquon told me and other reporters there after the game it started to get him into the zone. That really changed the game. That play off the left side with Josh Azudu and John Feliciano helping to lead the way and Barkley speeding down the sideline. That turned the game. It showed you how this Giants offense is going to run through him and how it can succeed efficiently despite pass blocking that wasn't there consistently for Daniel Jones. 
But this is about Saquon. This is about a player who all offseason told me, told reporters in New York, told friends of his on podcasts, told anyone who they who would listen that whatever side of the table they were on, they need to stay on that side when he starts turning it. And he said on one of his friends' podcasts a couple a couple weeks before the season that he was in kill mode. Screw everybody. Basically him against the world. And can you imagine putting that much pressure on yourself leading up to a big game, you're finally healthy, you feel like you have your skill and your talent and your big playability back, but Barkley's battled so many injuries and had so much uh, so many downturns here in his young career that it would be understandable for even him to doubt himself. But he had his shoulder down, his head down. He ran determined. He ran hard. He looked spry. Uh, he looked even better at times in this game than he did as a rookie. I was there in person. I saw it for myself. The two-point conversion call, great call and, and you know, incredibly ballsy call by Brian Dable in his first NFL game as head coach. That play was not executed well. Dable even said they didn't execute it great during training camp. And Barkley made something out of nothing with the linebacker crashing on the outside. He gave him a move and still juked outside of him and barreled through a tackle into the end zone. You really have to respect when an athlete and a player shows that kind of determination, puts in the work in the offseason, sticks their neck out to say what Barkley has been saying about all of his doubters, and then backs it up. But listen, we've seen this. We know that he can do this. We saw him do it with Pat Shermer as his coach, most notably against Washington on the road. We saw him do it in New Orleans with Joe Judge and Jason Garrett as his coaches with two touchdowns and a great win on the road last season. And now we see him do it to the Tennessee Titans. We knew he had it in him. Now the question is, and the challenge is, Saquon, can you do it again? The Carolina Panthers await in week two, but the opportunity is there. And the Giants have every reason to be excited about their running back playing at this high a level this quickly with the chip on his shoulder. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how incredibly fortunate I felt and grateful after the Giants-Titans game to be in the visitor's locker room, the winning locker room, and have Brian Dable grab me and a couple other reporters to the side and tell us a very intimate, personal, and emotional story about how he was thinking of his late grandparents who had died three weeks within each other the prior fall when he was with the Buffalo Bills, including his grandfather who passed away when Dable in 2021 was on the Bills plane flying to Nashville to play the Titans. So getting his first win on that field, grabbing the small urn with his grandmother's ashes around his neck on the sideline and looking up to the sky after Randy Bullock's uh, field goal sailed wide left from 47 yards. And then Dable grabbing me by the shoulder, uh, grabbing a few other reporters and really telling us uh, as personal a story as he could. And then the most emotional moment was at the end of the story when he told us his grandfather's last words, asking his wife if Dable was on the plane yet and then winking. Dable started breaking down, actually had to walk around a corner in the hallway, in the front of the locker room, just to have that private moment to himself because he didn't want to break down in front of all of us. But I don't lie when I tell you this. There were tears welling up in my eyes listening to him standing there, and there were tears coming down my cheeks writing that story in the press box 
at Nissan Stadium in Nashville. That is 100% true. Uh, I feel for Dable, and it was a human moment that you really couldn't get if you weren't in the locker room, and that I genuinely appreciate Brian Dable shared with me and with us in the winning locker room in Nashville. This is one of the many reasons why this is such a special job and a special place, and obviously I'm grateful to the New York Daily News for sending me on the road to all of these great games and opportunities to be there in person and be able to take this in and share those moments and then tell those stories to you. And now switching back very quickly to another uh, first-time NFL head coach, what was Nathaniel Hackett thinking? What were the Denver Broncos thinking on Monday Night Football? They have third, fourth, and five at the Seattle 46-yard line. You have Russell Wilson as your quarterback in Seattle against his former team. You've paid the sun, moon, and stars in trades and contracts for Russell Wilson. You let 30 seconds run off the clock with three timeouts in your pocket. And then you attempt a 64-yard field goal, Brandon McManus, that misses. And then watching Hackett use his two timeouts after the fact when Geno Smith and the Seattle Seahawks were on the field, I don't know if he knew that it wasn't going to help him get the ball back. It seems so futile, so uh, unusual. It seemed like the moment was too big for the team, for the coach. Not sitting here telling you I could do it. And we've seen a lot of coaches, even veteran coaches, be poor game managers. Pete Carroll's a great example of that in Seattle. Doesn't manage games well for all the uh, for all the accolades and all the things that he's won and done and how long he's coached. But you have to be worried if you're a Denver Broncos fan watching that. Conversely, very happy for Geno Smith, who deserves the opportunity he is getting. He got an opportunity opportunity when he was in New York for a reason, took a lot of backlash here when he was with the Giants, unfairly in my opinion. Obviously, there were things that happened with his time during the Jets that were part of growing pains of a young quarterback, but he deserved this type of opportunity sooner in his career. I got to know him when he was in the Giants locker room. I think he's an earnest person. I think he tries and works hard, and I think he deserves every every ounce of success he's having, and really right off the bat with a great win for his team against the Denver Broncos at home and couldn't be happier for players like Gino, the un, the real underdogs who are stepping forward and couldn't be more excited to continue watching the monsters, the sleeping giants in the Patrick Mahomes and the Saquon Barkley's that have awoken due to all the doubters out there for all of these great talents. We'll be right back here on talking ball with a very special guest, former NFL GM, Michael Lombardi. All right, we have a very special guest here on Talking Ball. This gentleman has three Super Bowl rings, three more than I do. <laughs> he is a former NFL GM, longtime executive, author of Gridiron Genius, which I have I back it. behind me. Go and pick it up. Great book. Host of the GM Shuffle podcast for the VEASAN Sports Betting Network and the founder of the Daily Coach newsletter. I know that's a mouthful, but this guy does it all. He is Michael Lombardi. Mike, thanks so much for joining me, man. It's good to be here, Pat. Thank you for having me. I love that the book's there. Love. What's that back porch page back there? What's that one there? That is The Observer, the Notre Dame Daily Student newspaper from when I was a student. Nice. And I was the managing editor there. So that is Brady Quinn in, in the picture there. I covered him and uh, you know Tyrone Willingham and Charlie Weiss at at Notre Dame. So wow. got to immortalize that. 
Love that. You know, my dad's 96 years old and, and he's still, even though he's living in an assisted living place, they, they still have masks there. And I think every week he gives $20 uh, figuring it's going to Notre Dame football, which obviously, you know, he hasn't figured that out yet. But anyway. <laughs> well, they need it now. That's for they, sure. They're going to need it. Um, it. We respect your knowledge about the entire NFL. So we're going to kind of cover a breadth of topics off of a crazy week one going into week two. And the the first thing I know you'll have an opinion on this is, okay, if you're a Denver Broncos fan or watching that game, what do you feel worse about? Nathaniel Hackett's time management and game management at the end of that loss to the Seahawks or how little Russell Russell Wilson's former teammates in Seattle and former coach seem to respect him? Well, I I think both. I I think, you know, there's a great scene in the movie The Offer on TV where uh, Jack Warner calls Charlie Bloodhorn and says, you know, I want to buy The Godfather and I'll give you a million dollars, even though Bloodhorn paid uh, $10,000 for it. So, you know, and he hangs up the phone and he says, what does Jack Warner know that I don't know? If I were if I were Denver, I would say, what does Seattle know that we didn't know? And I think it was clear on the tape. Let's keep with let's stay with Wilson for first Wilson's 183 yards rushing last year. He wouldn't move. And when he did move, he didn't have the same athleticism, the same speed that we were accustomed to seeing. Now he played hurt. He also didn't have that game-winning drive ability last year to lead his team back. You know, there was always a fear in betting public, don't take Russell Wilson in a three-point game. He'll beat your ass. And last year that proved not to be true. So that was concerning. And he got a big contract. And you were saying – you know, you really, if you're, if you're George Payton, you're saying, Hey, look, that was last year. This is this year. I don't know. He looked older. He looks like the fourth worst quarterback in the AFC West now. And you just paid him a boatload of money, you know, and he doesn't look like, like he was fine. He executed the game, but it wasn't spectacular. A lot of easy throws for him, you know, now Hackett to me, first time head coach, first time offensive coordinator, first time defense coordinator, it showed penalties. They went the, they went the Matt LaFleur route of let's not practice this summer. Let's have walkthroughs. Let's do this. And when we get to the game, we'll be great. And we've seen how that worked out for the Packers the last two seasons. And, and so for right, Denver, coming off look, yep. the best thing that happened to Denver, you know, it's like in, in the world, according to Garp, remember when that the plane crashes into the house and they say, well, at least this will never happen again, right? Well, <laughs> at least this will never happen again. You know, and I think as a Denver fan, you feel like, okay, Hackett's maybe learned his lesson. But uh, this is a long-winded answer. But to me, oh, it, this wasn't premeditated. Like, Buck didn't see it. Aikman didn't see it. On my couch, I saw it. When Wilson went to the sideline, I immediately knew they were kicking the field goal. I knew it. I knew they were kicking the field goal. And to me, that was that, that tells you it wasn't premeditated. That tells you the third down call was to get closer in the field goal range. It wasn't going to be two calls. Right. If you're planning that, you're planning it ahead. You're not just doing that last second. That's a decision you're making right. prior to that third down. Yeah, it was premeditated. So to me, at least now it won't happen again. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, Peyton Manning's reaction was exactly what we all had. But look, Sunday was, we, we are in an era, and you cover the historic team, the Giants, which a lot of people learn game management from their legendary coach, Bill Parcells. We are a league that doesn't understand game management. We are a league where Zach Taylor just got a contract extension and doesn't even run time off the clock in overtime when he could, when the game would have, when he could have guaranteed a tie. Does it manage the game? We have people not managing the game. 
And then we have people that just stub their nose at three points. They just they just don't think three points is worth a shit. When in reality, 75% of the games are decided by four points or less. I, I don't understand how the object of football is to collect points. And then in the first, second, and third quarter, you turn down points. I also think, Michael, from my vantage point, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like, and not that a lot of these young coaches are good coaches, or maybe they're a great offensive coach or defensive coach, but I feel like the owners get obsessed with the shiny new toys. And, you know, I think it's the Sean McVay effect probably, but it's like the shiny new young coach who injects life into your organization. And especially on the offensive side of the ball where the game is now, but is, is the game management element of these guys' skill set just completely overlooked by the people hiring him? Like, is that the problem? Well, they don't know what to ask the question, right? They don't even understand game management themselves. I mean, so let's put that in perspective. I mean, they don't really get that. They have an analytical person telling what game management is. But look, I am not anti-analytics. I, I have spent my career in the information business. So why would I stub my nose at an, an analytics? Because it's information. That being said... It has to be applicable. It has to be applicable. The first quarter in the National Football League, if you're a head coach, is different than the fourth quarter, right? I say this all the time on my podcast. The first quarter is about assessment. The second and the third quarter is about adjustments. The fourth quarter is a standalone game. It was so obvious on Monday. The fourth quarter was a standalone game on Monday night. Most of these games, the fourth quarter is a standalone game. So no one's been taught. Like I can give you a, a, a great example. So when I was in Philadelphia, Jeff Lurie came to me and said, we need to hire a young coach who is going to eventually replace Gruden because we know he's going to become a head coach. So we scoured the, the world and we ended up with Sean Payton. Okay. And Sean came in, he was going to go to Maryland to be a quarterback coach. He came in, he worked out of his, uh, he worked out of a suitcase at the veteran stadium. We had none, Bella be quiet. We had none of that. Right. So, you know, and so he learned, fo- he got there. He then went to New York And he started with the Giants. Parcells was watching him from afar. And so when Parcells became the head coach of the Cowboys, he had no relationship with Peyton, but he watched Peyton coach. He watched him handle his demotion from Jim Fossil really well. And he said, I think that guy's a really good young coach. So he takes him in. And at that moment, those years in Dallas with Parcells was like going to Harvard for for Peyton to become a head coach. He taught him how to become a head coach. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that anymore. We don't have anybody teaching these coaches how to manage the game in three dimensions, how to understand how to play offense, defense, kicking game to affect the game. And I think it's a, it's it's hard. I always say this: that the hiring cycle with head coaches and even GMs right now in the in the modern NFL, and even the expectations of quarterbacks to get it down right away and prove they're a star or not, the timelines are so accelerated. And then they also don't necessarily align like a quarterback might need three years, but a coach might only get two to build his program. And so everything kind of falls. uh, It's not aligned. It's not parallel. And it's definitely there is no patience in the league to kind of develop, it seems, talent at these most important positions of organizations to get them to that point. Yeah. I mean, look, Ben McAdoo is actually a better coach today than he was when the Giants hired him the first time, you know, uh, you know, Pat Shermer. So they went to an experienced coach with Pat Shermer. He, you know, obviously that didn't work. And then they went to an inexperienced head coach at Joe. And now they've got Brian, who's been around a lot of good coaches. So, but somebody's got to help the coach. 
you know, these search firms are out there and they're placing these coaches in different jobs in college football, particularly, but then they leave town. Nobody helps the coach. Nobody stays there to help the coach develop the coach. Like right. to me, I think it's an industry. That's why we started the daily coach. It, it's not, you. it's more basketball coaches come for advice than football coaches do because football coaches think they all know it. You know, I, I know I a coach know, yeah. who worked for, uh, he worked for a lot of top level coaches in the National Football League, Super Bowl winning coaches. And when he finally went to work with Belichick, you know, before he went to work with Bill, he kind of thought Bill, he knew what Bill did. But until he got in the building, he, then he said to me, I had no idea. Like, mm. like there's a separation between Bill and everybody else because Bill knows how to be a head coach. And speaking of the Belichick coaching tree and kind of staying in the AFC West, where I started with the Broncos, a team I, I'm really curious about your opinion on. This is a guy who actually has a second chance at being a head coach in Josh McDaniels. Michael, I picked the Raiders to win the AFC and represent them in the Super Bowl preseason. I watched this first game and I see the thing that could hold them back the most, which is it looks like their offensive line. But I know your son, Mick, the offensive coordinator. And obviously, you know, Josh from working in New England. And this is a team that a lot of people are picking as a darling team because they add Devonte Adams, they add Chandler Jones. But from your vantage point, why did they lose this week one game? And if you're me picking them to go to the Super Bowl, is there any panic? Is there reason to panic watching Derek Carr's turnovers and the way that the Raiders played in this game? Or did you see a lot of good things? How did you break that game down? Well, I mean, look, every game is about who's in control and who's in the lead. And the Chargers never were in control of the game. Think about this, Pat. With 3.30 to go in the game, the Raiders have the ball and a chance to win the game as bad as they played, as poorly as they played. Three turnovers. I don't think Carr played his best game. He would be the first to tell you that. Some of those sacks were really Carr holding onto the ball too long. They're correctable. But, I mean, and to hold Herbert, who's absolutely fabulous, the top five player in the National Football League, to hold him to 24 points is pretty impressive. So it's early. I think it's a game the Raiders feel like they should have won, but they didn't play their best. They didn't deserve to win, but they had a chance to win in the fourth quarter, and they didn't make plays. They got behind. The Raiders' key to make your prediction true will be simply this. They must start the game fast, play with the lead, play from in front, let Crosby and, and Chandler Jones rush the passer effectively and then create turnovers with their defense by their pass rush. But when you're behind in the first half, when you turn it over in the middle eight and you're not getting the ball to start the second half, you turn it over and they double dip on you. And now all of a sudden you're playing catch up and your defense can't really do what it does best, which is rush the passer. And is, is that O-line good enough or does is what you're talking about part of what would help the line, like running the ball because you have yeah. a lead, that type of thing? they, they got to work. In, they, again, this is three-dimensional problem for the Raiders. They have to protect their line and they have to run the ball. They can't get into a 50-pass. I mean, Josh Jacobs can't only have 10 carries or whatever the running back. They've got to have balance. They need it to have a uh, – you know, Parcells was a big believer in this, is which is you add rushing attempts and completions together, Okay. If you're okay. over 53, it does not mean you're going to win, okay? It has nothing to do with winning. It has everything to do with execution. And so okay. when you get over that, your execution is good. The Raiders' execution wasn't good. And a lot of it was unforced errors. You know, in tennis, they talk about unforced errors. In football, we don't. Yeah. 
But when Carr misses Waller on a on a crossing route, the play's designed to go to him. I'm sure they practiced it five times on Friday in practice, right? And he throws it behind him. That's an unforced error. And in the NFL and in pro sports, I always say this. I, I I'm glad you brought the tennis example up because I I I view tennis this way a lot. It's like because that's a one-on-one sport, and these people are so good. You make one mistake and give a, a professional athlete a second chance at something, then you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Like that, that's the difference between professional ath- athletes and anybody at any other level. You make an unforced error, you make a mistake, and the person across from you is going to shove that ball right down the line or down the baseline, for example, in a tennis match. There's no yeah, doubt about no it. No doubt. I mean, look, when Trey Lance overthrows a guy wide open, you know, Peyton Manning, you know, Peyton Manning doesn't do that. Derek Carr played like an amateur. He didn't play like his the professor. He can play better. We've seen it. We haven't seen Lance play better, but I think that's the difference. Great quarterbacks don't miss throws. Right, right. No, and we'll be looking for Carr to bounce back this week. Uh, the Raiders get the Cardinals minus five and a half, uh, so five and a half point favorites. We're looking to see my Super Bowl <laughs> AFC pick get back on it. But Michael, I I have to ask you about this because I know you picked the Giants to win in week one on the road at Tennessee, the AFC's number one seed from last year. I didn't think that was possible. I was dead wrong. You were right. Why did you see that coming? How did you see the Giants victory coming down in Nashville? Well, I think simply this, Pat, is when you play Tennessee, they're never going to run away from you because they're built on running the football play action. That's how they're built. And so when you run the ball in play action, you don't. When you run the ball in the NFL, you kick field goals. You don't score touchdowns. You can all any defense can make a stop in the run game. You know, make it. You know, you run the ball. Oh, now it's second and fourteen. Now you're behind the down and distance. So I knew the game would never get away from the Giants, and so I felt like the game would come down to the fourth quarter. Did I think they would win outright? You know, I, I thought opening day is always hard. Bad teams can beat good teams on opening day. But I just felt like the game was never going to get away from them. And because the the Titans are not explosive offensively, they don't have a lot of yards after the catch receivers. And Martindale's a really good defense coordinator who could stop the run, did a great job on Henry. I think he had less than 100 yards in the game. That there was really – they were not going to be able to play left-handed, right? Good teams can play right or left-handed. Tennessee, even last year, couldn't play left-handed. They got away with it. They got away with it because of some of the turnovers they created. Their defense improved during the year. But when they play good teams, they can't play left-handed. I'm not saying the Giants are a good team by no means. But Martindale made them play left-handed. Jones didn't turn the ball over, even though he fumbled again for his 39th time in his career. You know, they were able to play smart enough to stay in the game. And then Barkley had the best game I've seen Barkley have in his career. Is this a recipe for the Giants to win I think the over-under coming into the season was seven. Obviously, there's things stacked against them from a roster standpoint, though the schedule looks favorable. But is this a recipe for them to win a fair amount of games this year? Barkley in the running game, Martindale's defense. Do you think that they can sustain winning football just with those two things, even without you know solid pass protection? Like Jones, I think, was pressured on 18 of 26 dropbacks, I think it was. I, I don't – it's not a winning formula. It's it's a it's an avoiding losing formula. And most games on last Sunday, you teams didn't win. The other team lost. You know, yeah. you can say whatever you want about Miami and New England. 
I mean, New England turns the ball over three times. They give up 10 points or 13 points with their defense, with their offense. They lost the game. Miami played well. They, they created those mistakes by New England. And so, but New England lost. They didn't, Miami didn't necessarily win. You know, the Giants hung in there. And because they were able to control the pace of the game, Tennessee didn't lose, but they never were able to make the Giants play left-handed. Somebody's going to make the Giants play left-handed, and it's going to force Daniel Jones to have to throw it, and it's going to result in mistakes. I mean, I thought, actually, you were at the game. I thought Dayball was going to pull him when he went over to him at the bench. Yeah, after that interception, that was that was very interesting. If you're a Giants fan, you like seeing a coach right away going up and saying, this is unacceptable. We can't have decisions like that. I, I agree, Michael. I think you know, while they're trying to give Jones a chance, if they see that he is the reason at any point that is holding the team back, I definitely think Dable and Shane are more uh, discerning and bottom line in their decision-making than maybe people realize. You know, like you said, Dable, where he comes from, you know, Belichick, Saban, et cetera. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going to happen there either. That was definitely a stern talking to. And, you know, you can see, you make a good point too. When you're playing not to lose – then the margin for error is rail thin. And those are the plays, right, that may, that are the difference they lose between the game. And losing. Yeah, they lose you the game. And I, I, look, I think Joe and Brian already know where they're going with Jones. I think they know it, right? They're not going to yeah. come out and publicly say it. But you don't walk over to a quarterback who you think is going to be your generational guy you're building a team around and basically reprimand. You, you usually handle them with a little bit more kick. You go over there to tell somebody you're managing how to handle the game you know, and I think that's what they're going to do. They're going to try to run the ball as much as they can. They're going to try. Look, Dayball would start games last year in Buffalo where he didn't even try to run the ball. You know, yeah, but he's crazy. but he's smart enough to now to know. Look, we got to throw the. We can't throw the. If we throw it fifty times with Daniel Jones, we're going to lose. I mean, the first play of the game, what's he run? Speed option to get Daniel Jones running. You know, yeah. he's he wants to make the defense defend three runners. You know, the the receiver, the quarterback, and the halfback. And so you got to account for three runners in their offense. And he wants to let you know right away that's what you have to do. And so by doing that, he creates a little bit of, okay, we got to be careful here because they're going to run Jones. Whereas some teams, like, you know, we're not running our guy. And so now you only have to defend two runners. And so you said that someone has to make the Giants play left-handed. Are the Panthers going to be that team? You know, I know you watched, you know, their their week one game against the Browns. I thought they got screwed on that uh, roughing the passer call against Brian Burns on that last oh, yeah. drive. But is their defense, are the Panthers the team that can do that to the Giants? Because I know the Browns did run the ball very well against them. That's got to be a concern, right? The, 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 the Panthers went into the Browns game saying, we got to make Jacoby Brissett beat us. And they didn't do that, right? Jacoby Brissett really was a non-participant in the game. He, you know, he threw for 143 yards, but Chubb beat him, and so did Kareem Hunt. Now, the offensive line for Cleveland's really good. I mean, where I was disappointed, two areas of, of the Carolina's defense last week, they didn't put pressure on the quarterback, they really didn't harass per se, and they didn't tackle the talent very well. When I mean tackle the talent, tackle Hunt when he had a chance to. Hunt got a lot of yards after contact, so did Chubb. I mean, obviously, they're going to watch the same tape. They're going to see Barkley. They're going to try to take away the run game. They're going to force the receivers of the Giants to win on the outside against who they think have pretty good corners, whether it's J.C. Horn, C.J. Henderson, or Jackson. So, yeah, I mean, they could make them play. But, look, 
that they're going to want to come in here and play as careful as they can because they know Martindale's going to blitz them. They know Martindale's going to come after Mayfield and force him to, to try to throw the ball quickly and treat it. See, this game's going to come down to who makes the most mistakes. And I think this will be a close game going in the fourth quarter. And I think one of the teams will take over. Do you think McCaffrey only having 14 touches in week one, is is that something you think we can expect to continue, especially a guy who's been hurt so much? No. Maybe they're using him but kind of spreading they, it out, or is that an anomaly? They were so bad in the first half offensively. They couldn't get any rhythm at all. They got no, They couldn't get a rhythm. They could barely take a snap. I mean, they, 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 they must have dropped three or four snaps, you know. I think by the second half they got into some rhythm. I think you'll see a lot of McCaffrey this week. I think the matchup – favors for them to go into empty for them to do McCaffrey and say, okay, you want to blitz wink? Go ahead. Okay. We're going to go to empty and see how you want to blitz us. So you come in with everybody and who's covering McCaffrey. Right. And to your point, Dontrell Hilliard, who I did not, was not aware he was on the Titans prior to this game. No offense to him. Their backup running back tore up the giants yeah. inside linebackers in the past game, scored two touchdowns yeah. against Austin Calitro and Tay Crowder. So However, they plan on defending McCaffrey. It, it, it can't be that way. <laughs> yeah, well, they're going to have to get the right matchup. And, and you know, and so it's going to be a little bit of the chess match. And that's what I said earlier in this conversation. It's really about assessment and how they want to play them and then the adjustments that both teams make. And the great thing of your Giants fan watching that first week's game, as bad as the first half was offensively, it really did appear. First of all, Martindale coached a great game on defense. But then offensively, we definitely saw – the coaching advantage possibly that Dable and Mike Kafka can present with their adjustments going into the second half and recognizing how they needed to win the game and then implementing and doing it. Yeah. Michael, before we get you out of here, I want to, you actually brought up the Patriots. I wanted to ask you about New England because, frankly, I thought they would put up a better game and week one performance than people were expecting. Obviously, the turnovers was a huge part of it. But since the game ended, we've heard, I think Tom Curran reported that Kendrick Bourne uh, one of their receivers who was a big weapon and last year, uh, he only played two snaps. He makes one catch for 41 yards and then kind of stews on the sideline. And Curran reported in the days after the game that it sounds like he's in, Bourne is in Matt Patricia's doghouse on the offensive side of the ball. I'm just wondering from your standpoint, obviously Belichick runs a tight ship, no nonsense. And listen, if guys are acting out, then coaches need to set a standard. But do you think that that's something that will change organizationally, the idea that, listen, we need our best players on the field, or is it healthy that Belichick and Patricia are running this type of ship and playing the guys who maybe aren't showing up 30 seconds late to a meeting or aren't uh, kind of unhappy with the way that personnel is being deployed? Well, I mean, this is, I mean, Bill hasn't changed his style going back to Cleveland in 91. So, it, you know, Bourne earns the right to play. He's going to play. And if Bourne can help the team, he's going to help the team. He's going to play. Uh, and, look, I think the Patriots, for all the conversation about how bad they are offensively, they moved the ball on every drive in the game. They turned the ball over. They made way too many mistakes. Miami was the better team that day. There's no denying it. Uh, but there was there were elements of that game where you felt like New England's offense would look look good. You know, they looked like they were kind of getting into some rhythm, but they couldn't finish drives. It's a long season. I have faith that he'll fix it. I think their defense was kind of an untold story. Other than the forty, other than a forty-seven yard touchdown pass they gave up to to Waddle on that inside, you know they played really well. They stopped the run. They made two have to try to make. I mean, if it's not for Tyreek Hill making a jump ball catch, you know yeah. it, 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 it's really good. So look, it's a long season. 
I got faith in the head coach, but they have to get better in every three, all three phases of the team for them to really be a good team again. And they weren't a good team last year to start the season. They became a good team during the season, and at the end of the year, they weren't a good team. So they need to figure out that they need to figure out that void. Yeah, and you're right. That was an uncharacteristic defensive breakdown against Waddle right before the half. But uh, yeah, it did look like they moved the ball well outside of the turnovers. They are one and a half point favorites. It looks like against the Steelers and Mike Tomlin, who, despite a great defensive performance against the Bengals, held on for dear life. Hard to imagine that that's a recipe for success in Pittsburgh. Well, I mean, they lose T.J. Watt too, right? And so, you know, yeah. they did nothing offensively. I give Mike Tomlin credit. Again, he knows how to play three-dimensional football. He, You know, I thought he would – I didn't think Pittsburgh would win the game. I thought they'd cover. But Zach Taylor's decision-making in that game always lends itself for, to wonderment for me. You know, does it run the – I mean, should they come out of the game with a tie? You know, it, it, it to me, when your quarterback's struggling like he does, you, you really got to handle protection better. So – Look, it's funny when you go through the numbers. Uh, most teams think that when you play your second road game, you're really not very good. Since 2019, straight up, teams that had two road games to win to start the season are nine zero and one, straight up. Ooh. They cover the spread. Teams that have two home that. games, teams that have two home games are eight or seven and eight, straight up. So, like you would think, the home team playing home twice, you're de- definitely going to get a win again. That's not necessarily yeah. the case. I think. I think Pittsburgh's going to have to really improve offensively for them to 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 win again. They're going to need that plus four turnover just to win games. And frankly, the way McPherson usually kicks, if he just is normal, they're going to they're as bad as since he played, they should have won. Definitely, no doubt about it. Michael, I get smarter every time I listen to you talk football. Everybody, please go and listen to. I'm sure you do already. The GM Shuffle podcast. Michael, thanks again for joining us. Really thanks, appreciate Pat. it. I appreciate it. All right, back here on Talking Ball for the two-minute drill. We're going to talk some betting lines and some fantasy. Wanted to focus on some crazy target numbers for wide receivers that fantasy owners should keep an eye on. So first overall in week one, Devontae Adams for the Raiders had a whopping 17 targets from Derek Carr, turned it into 10 catches for 141 yards and a touchdown. A guy who might not be as high on your radar, but definitely opened my eyes, Michael Pittman with the Colts. He's consistently a top breakout candidate, but really did some work in this game against the Texans. Nine catches, 121 yards, and a touchdown. You can see Matt Ryan looking for him often in big play spots. A.J. Brown for the Philadelphia Eagles, 13 targets, 10 catches for 155 yards. Christian Kirk for the Jacksonville Jaguars, 12 targets, only six catches for 117 yards. So some meat on that bone, something to look for in week two, that the targets were there and the production could even increase from the 117 yards he racked up against Washington. And Javante Williams, obviously a popular pick by a lot of people to be a big fantasy back in Denver, 12 targets in the passing game from Russell Wilson. Ends up only gaining 108 total yards on 18 touches with a fumble, but you can see that all of the talk is for a reason. He's going to see the ball and touches a lot in Denver's offense, and so the production should be there provided he stays healthy. Now, staying on some player uh, numbers that we want to project maybe into week two off of week one, something to watch, especially if you're a Giants fan. Saquon Barkley and the Giants rushed for 238 yards against the Tennessee Titans in week one. Their week two opponent is the Carolina Panthers, 
And ready for this, the Cleveland Browns rushed for 217 yards on the ground against Matt Rule's defense. Obviously, they have Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, an excellent offensive line. Can the Giants do it to the Panthers as well? Well, we saw Barkley dominating, especially in the second half against the Titans' run defense. So the Giants, the recipe for success and what they need to plan to do to help Daniel Jones and that offense succeed, clearly it is right in front of them looking at what they did and what the Panthers did not do on the defensive side in week one. Now moving to some of my favorite game picks against the spread using FanDuel lines as always until someone else pays us to put their name on it instead. I like the Jaguars plus four and a half against the Colts as home dogs. I thought Jacksonville put up a fight against Washington and their offensive line needs to protect Trevor Lawrence better, but I do like their skill group and their ability to score points. So I don't like them being four and a half point dogs, such large dogs against a team in the Colts who only were able to tie the Houston Texans. Seattle Seahawks plus nine and a half dogs at the San Francisco 49ers. Is Trey Lance good enough for the Niners to blow out a Seahawks team that just surprised a lot of people and won at home against Russell Wilson and the Broncos? We will see, but I like the Seahawks there. The Cincinnati Bengals, uh, plus seven and a half at Dallas. Listen, I know the Steelers gave him a great game. Minka Fitzpatrick and the Steelers' offense is nothing to sniff at. Dallas's defense looks very good. Micah Parsons still can't believe the Giants didn't draft the guy. Uh, was a di- dynamic player as always on the pass rush. So it is possible that the Bengals offense again has some trouble against a team with a good defense and a struggling offense. But Lou Anarumo and that Bengals defense, man, I'm telling you, they will turn over the Cowboys offense and the Bengals not getting any respect coming off of that week one game with Burrow, I believe five turnovers, but I think they bounce back. And then the Packers, nine and a half point favorites, against the Chicago Bears. I know Green Bay came out flat in week one. Seems like that's a a disturbing trend with Matt LaFleur these last couple of years, but I think Aaron Rodgers and the Packers find their way. They lean more than they should have in week one, and they do in week two on the running game with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, and the Packers get it done in blowout fashion. That's it for Talking Ball right now. We will be back next week with another special episode, special guest, and more to talk about as this exciting NFL season rolls on. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.